to be really direct. What the fuck happens to your voice? So at the end of the day, I've been screaming for these promos, but I'm not even gonna react. At the end of the day, you know, I wanna clarify something. Stop the coke, nigga, it's fucking up your voice. I wanna, I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna clarify some things. I wanna clarify some things. I don't do cocaine. I will do, I will do a live drug test. What do you do? I will do a what live do you do? drug test. What do you do? I drink and I smoke weed, and so has the majority of this room. What, 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 what kind of example are you for the younger generation watching this? Talking about you drinking, you smoke weed, we making, that, making that cool. Bro, you, the younger generation look up to us. What are you, what are you talking about? Why are you making, trying tired. to publicize you? Drink, whatever you do behind closed doors, really you do behind closed doors. Why are you trying to... This, this, young kids, it's, it's young kids watching us. It's young kids watching us. How you good, man? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. people watching... Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we still don't buy followers, but more importantly, we're in a sport where we just don't know where we're going, do we? We don't know what to get excited about. We don't know what the future holds. And it feels, and feel free to tweet me, hit me up on Insta, wherever it is. It feels as if we're all a little bit deflated right now when it comes to boxing. And I... Measure it from where we were when we got Inoue versus Fulton and Crawford versus Spence in the space of a couple of days. You know, guys like Rick Glazer are very quick to forget how important the PBC were in giving fans fights that they wanted. But we'll come on to that later. What I really want to talk about is almost sort of since I've been gone, where are we? What's happened? You know, because people have asked me questions on various things, so it might be nice to touch on those. But I think there's a there's a bigger, more overarching thing of where's boxing going and should we be worried? My instincts tell me we should be really, really worried as boxing fans. And we need to start holding the promoters to account and we need to start putting pressure on people to deliver on their commitments because we're we're fast approaching a cliff face and we might just topple over. And look, we, when, we, when we talk boxing in 2024 and 2023, in fact, we have to start with Saudi Arabia because that's fundamentally shifted the axis of boxing away from the United States. Now, I want to talk in depth about the stuff that's happened since I've sort of not recorded. And that would include, was it Clash on the Dunes? I can't even remember where they fought in December. But it's very, very interesting that the axis of boxing shifted when people couldn't travel to America. There was never this kind of appetite before, but once people couldn't travel to America, it was like, right, make all those fights here. And I'm supposed to believe that someone in Saudi Arabia saw that and went, there's an opportunity for us. I don't necessarily think so. And this conspiratorial side of me which is a small part, but a significant part, says, hmm, what's going on here? But the axis of boxing has moved to Saudi Arabia just for the sheer amount of money available for, in some cases, relatively low-risk fights. Look, if we, if we look at it objectively, Gaza Mark Demore and Elazora made more money that night than they were making any other fight in their career. 
and I don't say that to demean them, but they're not stupid people. They know their level in the sport. And so they know to make that kind of money relative to what they made before is almost a miracle. It's crazy. Like it's it's like going from earning 40k a year, then someone says, Listen, mate, I'd you fancy coming up here for three months? I'm on a pro rata, it'll be 150 a year pro rata. All of a sudden your bank balance looks different, your account looks different. And just when you get to that kind of, yeah, this is amazing. You got to go back to normal. How do you do that? How do you do that if you're Ellis Zorro and you've got to go back and rebuild? Um, we haven't even seen Ellis Zorro, I don't think. So is there an appetite for him to fight again? I don't know. He's in a cruiserweight division where there's a lot of action if he wants it. But he hasn't made any noises about wanting it. But those guys got to make money. Um, you know, Ellis Zorro got absolutely cooked by Jaya Pattaya and I'm wary of calling Jaya Pattaya the second coming of Usyk based on a Jordan Thompson win and an Ella Zorro win I know people say yeah but he beat Bradis I've never rated Bradis and I've been consistent in my message where I said that cruiserweight um, world boxing super series that Usyk won was just a load of mediocre guys those guys weren't great. They weren't amazing fighters. They weren't. And you're, you're seeing how easily guys like Bill and Smith are handling dudes like Masternak. So I'm like, well, you know what would Bill and Smith have done in that Super Series? It, it, it wasn't a great vintage. And Usyk was the shining light by a long way in that. And guys like Bradis, yeah, you'd expect Opatai to win that again and win it more comfortably. And I'd still wouldn't guarantee Opataya could beat Reactpoint. I still wouldn't guarantee Opataya could beat Billum Smith and I still wouldn't guarantee Opataya could beat Chamberlain. I probably couldn't guarantee that Opataya could beat Okoli and I'm going to get a hard time for saying that so that's why, maybe that's why I said it, I don't know. Um, but my point is they paid these guys a lot of money and it provided no further clarity on who we should be getting behind. Philip Hergovich fought Mark Namori. This is embarrassing. Look at, look at the lack of stick Philip Hergovich got for fighting Mark Damori. And he fought Mark Damori what? Uh, like nearly what? Nearly seven years after David did? And when David fought him, they were like, ah, this guy's a... Ah, man, he's just a road sweeper. Learned to box on YouTube. This guy's an embarrassment. And we got a hard time, you know, Bellew. Didn't Bellew say he could have beaten all of those guys in, in the same night? And here you've got Hergovich, who's meant to be the heir apparent to the IBF crown, fighting him. So it goes to show in boxing, like we pick and choose our heroes. And sometimes we're not selective enough about who we choose. Once again, a lot of money to pay to not find out anything. And then you've got Joshua versus Otto Wallen. Now, I'm warming to Joshua. So for this one, like Joshua gets a pat on the back, number one for activity. I think that would have been his third fight of the year. Jermaine Franklin, Robert Hellenius, and Otto Wallen. Not great names, but like I said, you know, how many people can name every one of Muhammad Ali's opponents? You can't. Like there's certain points in your career where you kind of just fight a bit of dross while you wait for for business to pick up. But Joshua stayed active. Um, 
much like Canelo, he's in that phase of his career now where he's almost like, I've done the hard work now. Let me enjoy the fruits of my labor. And I can't be mad at that, man. Boxing, boxing is what it is, and this is the nature of the beast. And we'll come on to why that's problematic later on. But for now, Joshua versus Wallen, perfect setup for him. Um, Wallen has those annoying southpaw bad habits of of folding on the inside so he'll fold from right to left without taking a step back. So he's banging range for Joshua to just shovel shots at him. And you'd have thought seeing as you know they'd boxed each other before, he might make some corrections, but Joshua dealt with him easily. Fury didn't. Which then poses more questions about how good is Tyson Fury really. But that fight told us nothing we didn't already know about Joshua. But maybe that was the first, first time, maybe the, the, the green shoots of old Femi coming back, a guy who really wants to do damage. It might not be. It might have just been that Wilder was just an easy fight for him. If you think about the psychology, when you've already beaten someone before, they don't have that same fear factor because you know you chose them. They're handpicked. And you've got the psychological edge and they're getting paid because of you. And Joshua's not stupid. He understands the importance of psych psychological leverage. But once again, a fight that, while it was good for both people's bank balances, didn't tell us what we didn't already know. And equally, Dimitri Bivol versus Lyndon Arthur told us nothing. Um, credit to Lyndon Arthur, by the way. And I hope you got well paid because he played his part to the best of his ability he made it compelling because you knew Bivol was going to win and you wondered if he was going to stop him. And then as you saw him dominate, you thought he's going to stop him here. And Lyndon Arthur showed heart and character to, to carry on going. Now I'm a Lyndon Arthur fan. I like him. Liked him since he was an amateur. like his character. I like how he conducts himself boxing-wise. I think we should be throwing him in the mix. He should be in that Dan Aziz, Spider Riches mix. Why not? Let's... Let's get him involved because he's, he's not out of place at that level. And we just, all we want in this country is our guys to fight each other. Let, let's, let's make that money. Once the Saudi cash starts to dry up, um, particularly during Ramadan and just after, can't we get some of these fights going, please? But look, Bivol's ticking over until he fights Baturbia, which I think is June 1st. And you know, people talk about, ah, oh, this would be an incredible fight. I... I I think once Baturbiev can, can kind of figure out the, the pace and activity, and once he can start to push Bivol back, I think it's a matter of time until Bivol gets stopped. I think Baturbiev will stop Dimitri Bivol. But despite the doom and gloom, there were two fights on that Saudi card that were important for the heavyweight division, I think. Um, number one was Daniel Dubois versus Gerald Miller. First thing I want to say is just get Gerald Miller on every card. Find an opponent for him. Miller understands how to bring eyes to an event. That's his skill. Um, I think it's easy for us to, to point to people as drug cheats, and often people do. And a lot of people who point out Miller's a drug cheat will have Tyson Fury in their bio, Tyson Fury as a profile picture, which I find odd, find, <laughs> find that really, really strange. But Miller knows what to do. He's like, when I'm here, I need to make an impact. I need to be everywhere. He... <laughs> 
he converted, he cried, he, he pulled up on Joshua, he put the pressure on AJ. He did everything as a fan. If, I, if I'm not watching the actual fight, Miller did everything I want to see. And there's a lesson in that for people. Like sometimes you've just got to be that villain. And that's how you make your money. So I really enjoyed seeing Miller. But him against Dubois was an interesting challenge because, you know, obviously we saw what happened with Usyk and Jerome Miller's quite a hard rebuilding fight. I think they caught him at the right time because he was definitely overweight. He was definitely rusty. And so for someone who's as accomplished as Daniel is, you could see what was going to happen. But for him to stop Miller, impressive. Um, credit where credit's due, due to Don Charles. And Don doesn't get the credit he deserves in boxing for being able to, to revive careers. I don't know what it is with Don. I think sometimes he's just a guy that puts an arm around you. But that's, that's almost to downplay what Don does. Don, in his 60s, will still wear the body belt, will still hold the pads. Is still an unbelievably strong human being. And all of those things combined mean that Don's a trainer that doesn't get the respect he deserves. Doesn't get the interviews he deserves. I don't see Boxing King Media driving down to see Don Charles. I don't see Boxing Social driving down to see Don Charles. I, I see all these sit-downs with Shane and all these other trainers and they're deserved. There's a sit-down with Ben Davison. Deserved. There's no sit-down with Don Charles. But Don's one of the more interesting guys in boxing. He's got the stories fans would want to hear. And I'm glad that he helped Daniel towards that win. Because now that puts Daniel back in the mix. You can argue Daniel's back in that top 10. And so that's a big win for Frank. So being able to turn Daniel around and have him contending again so quickly. Credit where credit's due. And then obviously the, the, the fight that kicked everything up in the air. Joseph Parker versus... Deontay Wilder. So let's be absolutely clear. <laughs> on December 20th, Deontay Wilder was one of the crown jewels in the heavyweight division. Deontay Wilder was one of the prized assets in boxing. A boxer who could legitimately sell pay-per-views. A boxer who could generate column inches. A boxer who had fans watching. Four days later, the world turned on him. Now, everyone was saying, ah, Andy Lee tactical masterclass. I don't necessarily think it was. Um, Parker did what he normally does it's this kind of weird sort of boxing brawl style that he has and you know it's not like he did anything against Wilder that he didn't do against Dillian or that he didn't try and do against Joshua you know that idea of just swarming he couldn't do it against Joe Joyce because Joe doesn't allow you to do that Joe, <laughs> Joe owns the conversation with his work rate so we know what Parker's about and Wilder normally doesn't have problems with this because you, you, you know what Deontay does. You know, he'll throw the jab, slide back on his back foot, throw the jab again, slide back on his back foot. Once he feels the distance is right, and I don't think that's a technical thing, I think it's instinctive for him. He lets an uppercut go or straight right go, and it's normally good night. That was Deontay Wilder. When you watch Wilder at his best, he's never in a position you would coach. All the good stuff Deontay Wilder's ever done is from a position you can't really coach because it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. And what that means is it's harder for your opponent to read you. 
because they're expecting you to be in a certain place to do a certain thing and that doesn't happen so they get thrown off they have to recalibrate and readjust and in that moment Wilder can catch you it looks like Malik Scott's taken all of that away so let's go back to one of my first principles when it comes to boxing a boxer will always reflect the character of their trainer what you see in the ring will reflect the character of the trainer um I've said it before, Malik's got some man who literally, who, I can't say literally, who looked like he threw himself to the floor every time he was under pressure in that ring. Now, I can't tell you whether he's got the heart of a lion or not, not my opinion. I'm just telling you that he, he looked terrible. Yeah, he looked terrible in all of his defeats. But you look at his record and you can't say Malik's got a bad boxer, but he looked like a guy who who loved boxing but was scared to box at the same time because Chisora stopped him. Um, Wilder stopped him. I think Ortiz took him the distance, but that was a, a Malik Scott that didn't want to engage. And so when you combine that with Deontay Wilder and Wilder is almost like, well, I'm stuck with this guy now because I don't have Breland, I don't have Jade Diaz helping me. I'm just stuck with this guy. I've got to listen to him. And everything he's telling you is counter to what you've done up until this point. Everything he's telling you, you know, stand in this position, you know, try and slip and slide. And Wilder holds his feet a lot more now under Malik Scott than he should have done. I had to steal that from Ricky Woodall. But he does. He's not as dynamic as he used to be. And yes, age is a factor, but you're still a lot lighter than most heavyweights. So you should be a bit more mobile. And he didn't look it. And once he became an immobile target, he was easy work and easy pickings for Joseph Parker. If I was advising Wild, I'd have got rid of Malik Scott. But then that's another trainer. You've got to start again. He's kind of stuck with what he's stuck with. Maybe he just needs to go back and trust his own instincts. Trust his own ability to be a warrior because uh, his trainer was never one. But that kicked the chessboard up in the air and no matter what you feel about Wilder, and some people hate Wilder because they love Joshua and they love Fury, but there's objectively not many reasons to hate Wilder. And someone's going to go, yeah, he slept with his brother's sister. So did Ryan Giggs and people kind of forgave him for that. My issue with this is Deontay Wilder was money. A winning Deontay Wilder would have been more money for everybody. More money for Joshua, more money for Fury, more money for her, whoever, Zhang, whoever. Joseph Parker does nothing because we saw Parker get wiped out by Joe Joyce, who got wiped out by Zhile Zhang twice. And then we're going to go into March and look at Parker versus Zhang. And so this is a confusion. How good and how bad is everybody? At the moment... It looks like on any given Saturday, boxer A can be boxer B, no matter what the pedigrees are. I got asked this question. Someone said to me, do I think Daniel Dubois could be Anthony Joshua? I'm like, yeah. But I also think Anthony Joshua could be Daniel Dubois. I think Joe Joyce could be Joshua. Joshua could be Joe Joyce. Joe Joyce could be Dubois. Dubois could be Joe Joyce. We, after December, we had to bring everyone back down to a certain level and say, you guys aren't as good as we thought you were. You're all kind of much of a muchness. And that's good because it means that there's no excuse for you guys not to fight each other. So let's get stuck in. And then what happens? Joshua goes and fights Nganu, pulls himself out of that mix. 
because he's not concerned with being in that mix. A lot of these guys aren't. And it's getting problematic, right? In the main division in boxing, that we can only get the fights we want to see in one country, in one season, because once Riyadh season's done, I don't think they're going to care about boxing until it starts up again. And, and rest assured, you know, the Saudis had a solid plan. The solid plan was, let's go from December, get all of these heavyweights cracking, and then we go to Undisputed in February. And Tyson Fury, you know, <laughs> he made that difficult. Now, there are conspiracy theorists who say that he was never going to fight. He was always going to pull out. But I don't think that was set up. Like, Porky didn't believe that fight would happen. But I think that was more just gut feeling. He just had that instinctive feeling that that fight wouldn't happen. I don't think he thought it's conspiratorial. I just think he understands, number one, you're getting older. Number two, the way you train isn't conducive to staying fresh and staying fit. As much as people challenge me on that, it's true. So I can see where Russ was coming from when saying the fight wouldn't happen. And I'm glad that he was right because it gave more credibility to his channel and he deserves that. I can only tell you what the little bits I heard. I heard Fury was training like a demon. I heard he was training with that real fear of, if I don't nail this, there is no legacy. Vlad means nothing. Wilder means nothing. Because Parker's kind of taking a shine off those Wilder wins. That means nothing now. Undisputed or bust for Fury. And he trained like that. You know, I worry when a, a man his size and his age now is doing between 24 and 30 rounds of sparring a week. And obviously it's not all you know, balls to the wall sparring. 100%. But, but still, just being in that zone mentally. You know. And just doing that many rounds, you, you kind of bring risk and there's a fatigue risk. That can be a physical fatigue and a mental fatigue whereby you start to look and go, well, I can see how an injury could happen with that volume of work. And I look, I, I like the idea of people talking about you've got to train tough, you've got to train old school. But when you're in your mid-30s, your body ain't going to let you. Yeah. So I believe Fury had the cut. Um... I'm not going to overly analyze that. It happens. Um, there's a lot of reckless stuff. I don't know why no one called foul about the elbow. And I don't know if that guy will ever spar with Fury again because that was a reckless elbow. And that felt needless for where they were at the stage of camp. That felt absolutely needless. And that maybe that's where the conspiracy theorists jump in and go, well, he might have been asked to throw that elbow. But can I just say for the record, you wouldn't want to take an elbow like that. If you had a choice, <laughs> you just say your hamstring or your back went. But that's also kind of delayed plans, right? Because we were meant to have undisputed. Joshua kind of does his stay busy fight with Nganu, and then we go to whatever that was. So now we've got to have Joshua staying busy against Nganu with no real context and no storyline for him, by the way. He's just going to be parked up until undisputed's done. And then you've got to say, right, the winner of this is going to fight Joshua. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't feel as exciting as this would have done about between six and four years ago. Now we're kind of like, how do you describe it? And this is going to kind of age some of us. Back in the day, you could walk into McDonald's 
and you were hungry as hell, right? And what you did is you looked at what was cooked and ready. Oh, you got oh, you got a quarter pounder there, you got a Big Mac there, you got fillet of fish, perfect. And you might say, mate, just get me that Big Mac, large fries, large Fanta, right? You might just do that. And you could be in and out of McDonald's in 90 seconds. What happens now? You go to the stupid kiosk, go faff around with, with the a touch screen that's not very responsive. So sometimes you've got to touch the thing six inches away to get it right. You go through all this process. Yeah, It tells you your number, 57. Sometimes it doesn't even print out the damn receipt. So you've got to remember your number. This could be after a few drinks. And you're looking up at the screen. And there's all these mad codes for delivery and people that ordered on the app and all this stuff. And then eventually after about 20 minutes of faffing around and waiting and people fighting in the restaurant, you get your food. At that point, you ain't really got the same hunger. You're like, you just eat it out of habit now. Yeah, I paid for it. I may as well eat it. But it will never satisfy that ravenous urge you had when you first walked in. And I feel like the heavyweight division is there right now. We, we've, we've waited so long for that Big Mac, um, fries, Fanta, and hot apple pie. We've waited so long for that. That we're kind of like, uh, just want to get home and get to bed now. And that's the sad thing. Like, whoever wins undisputed, if it happens, whoever then defends against Joshua, no one's going to care. And they'll never be able to sell it to us because we're past caring now. Uh, we've seen Crawford go undisputed in two weight divisions, we've seen Charlo go undisputed, we've seen Canelo go undisputed, we might see Baturbiev go undisputed. It's not impressive anymore. Like we understand that promoters can conveniently create scenarios in which they can achieve undisputed. It's not based on taking all comers anymore. So between December and Saudi, Fury's thing, uh, it's an absolute mess. And here's where we're relying on Joshua now to defend the honor of boxing. Because can you imagine if Nganu does put a dent in Joshua. Not wins, by the way. If he puts a dent in Anthony Joshua, if he can knock Joshua down, ah, it doesn't bear thinking about, boxing could be finished. Because they'll say, look, Eddie Hearn said that's the biggest star in boxing. And they'll tell you, Ngannou's not the biggest star in MMA. Joshua losing to a guy who's not the biggest star in MMA. What do you mean by that? Even in his own weight class, you got John Jones and you got Brock Lesnar. And people go, oh, Brock could, eh, Brock could still mix it. Um, I don't know if you still got Stipe. Uh, you got a few others. Cyril Gagne. You've got, a, you've got a few guys in there. That Ngannou is probably in the conversation. Whereas you've got Joshua who commercially head and shoulders. And then you've got all the other guys in the MMA. Like Sean Strickland and Izzy and... All these guys who generate interest. Can you imagine a boxer losing to a guy who's just in the mix? But no one can say 100% that Ngannou loses. Not one person can. It's not a 50-50, but you're like, Ngannou has a chance. If he can set about Joshua, he has a chance. And that's kind of scary. That boxing is on its last legs and Joshua's our potential saviour. Now, if Joshua knocks him clean out, 
thank God for that. I personally think Joshua stops and going, but I think he stops him with a body shot. It's not going to be headshots. I think I can I can almost imagine in my head how I would want Joshua to stop him, and it would just be a a flick jab to the head, just a lazy backhand, not even to the face, maybe just to the to the throat or to the collarbone. Switch to your left hand side and just rip a double left hook to the body. Stop him right there. That that would be the perfect victory for me if that did happen. But I can't guarantee it. And Garn is a monster. You see, when you see those two together, you see someone who engaged in manual labor as a kid. And Garnu looks like someone that was destined to be big. Joshua looks like someone who they had to make big. Now, people say, yeah, they might all be on gear. Maybe, I don't know. But whether they were on gear or not on gear, Ngannou would always be a bigger man than Joshua, just in terms of stature, thickness, bones, all of that. He just... He, he looks like he'd cause mayhem. He looks like if those two met in the octagon, he'd have Joshua doing somersaults. But that card... What have they done? It's kind of like a, a split between Matchroom and Queensbury, isn't it? I think like Queensbury might have six fighters and Matchroom have four. Um, who am I interested in? I'm just interested in Jack McGann because I'm Team Alfie Warren. So I want to see what Jack McGann gets up to out there. And, you know, he deserves his opportunity. You know, he was meant, I think he was meant to be fighting in, in the Fury fight. Well, not in the fight, but on the card. And I don't think he managed to make that happen, unfortunately. But no, I'm interested to see what they can do with him. But then the problem is, <laughs> when you're putting someone like Jack McGann in all of these scenarios, eventually these aren't going to happen for various reasons. Like, you know, will he be comfortable being back in York Hall on a cold winter's night? But look, there's some decent fights on there. Like, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to give him credit. They... They haven't, they haven't given us the remnants of the drip trace for the card, so that's good. So you've got um, Israel Madrimov, one of Hearn's guys, against, um, I always just say Russian guy. Don't even know if it is a Russian guy, but it probably is. Uh, but I'm more interested in Nick Ball versus Ray Vargas, actually. Um, Vargas hasn't had a win for a couple of years, but you know he's still Ray Vargas. Nick Ball... Demolished Isaac Dogbo, which hurt me, by the way, hurt me significantly because everyone knows I am Team Dogbo. And I look at that and I go, if Nick gets through Ray Vargas, like he becomes transatlantic in terms of, you know, featherweights. He can start calling out those sorts of names where he says, right, let me have a belt here. Um, and you'll see a lot of those matchroom guys who could be 126 suddenly become super featherweights. If he can do a real number on Ray Vargas. But, you know, I can imagine I'm going to get criticized. Oh, you know what? You never show Hearn fighters any respect. No, Madrimov's all right, okay? He's going to fight, I think it's Kurbanov. Um, how that guy's undefeated is beyond me. What kind of... Yeah, I always worry about undefeated records when there are no, no recognizable names, no benchmark names. But, you know, it's the nature of the beast. Get Madrimov over. Um, get him a good payday. And then, I think if you're Hearn... Then what you're saying is, right, let's get him back on our estate and he can make us some real money. Um, what, am I looking forward to anything else in that fight? Gavin Gwynn versus Mark Chamberlain. So we're going to find out if Chamberlain is the guy that people keep telling me that he is. 
and I get messages about him, and I'm, my mind is open. But he's got to do a number on Gavin Gwynn. But Gavin Gwynn, you know, ain't Merthyr Tidville's finest. He, he's there to have a row. So, I mean, that's a fight you sit down and tune in for. But the, the real fight that night is Gilles Zhang versus Joseph Parker. If Andy Lee is the trainer that everyone keeps telling me he is, we're going to find out when Parker faces Gilles Zhang. Because we know Zhang's got those kind of shots that can do a number on you, right? And he's shown it against Joyce twice. He's shown it against Hergovich. Both guys that we would rate higher than Parker. So if Parker gets that win, does he deserve to fight the winner of the undisputed fight over Joshua? I would say yes. Those two wins would be better than any Joshua wins. If Joseph Parker was able to beat Deontay Wilder and Gilles Zhang, it's a wrap, mate. Like, he's got to fight whoever wins undisputed. And then, if it's Fury, then what does Andy Lee do? But that's how I'd summarize it. Um, I think there'll be some few, a few other guys on that card, but it comes back to this thing, doesn't it? The Saudis don't want to give Frank too much power, but they'd rather deal with Frank than deal with Eddie. I think... You know, Frank has a bit more gravitas. Well, the Warren organization just has more gravitas. And they seem a more professional and synced up operation. So one of the things I wanted to touch on was this proposed 5v5, Matchroom versus Queensbury. And the reason I wanted to do that was, when it was announced, it was made out like it was this huge, huge thing. Until you did the mental analysis and you went... Um, I'm not so sure. And here's why. The biggest constraint on all of this is going to be, and, you know, I don't want to get in trouble for this, Frank, Francis, guys, George, come on, be nice to me here. But the biggest constraint of this is the, is the Queensbury stable. And the reason I say that is they don't have many international guys. So it's going to be a UK-focused stable, which means that the fights have to appeal to UK fans, really, like you're not you're not really going to get two Americans on here. It's going to have to be a a series of fights that appeal to UK fans because it's UK fans that have demanded this, right? The five v five, so you're you're limited by what Queensbury have. That doesn't mean that it's an inferior stable, but it means that the fights have to make sense to a British audience. Okay, so where do you start? You obviously have to start with the division that anchors all of boxing, the heavyweights. Okay, so you go down the the Queensbury list, and you've got let me just remember off the top. You've got Tyson Fury, crossed him off. I mean, he he's not doing this. You got Joe Joyce. If Joe beats Cash Alley, I think Joe's on a different path. But let's keep him in the mix just in case. You've got Dubois. Frank's not putting Daniel Dubois in this unless Joshua puts Joshua. I mean, unless Eddie Hearn puts Joshua in, they're not putting Dubois in there. It doesn't make any sense. Even if you dug up Dillian White, they'd be like, nah, Dubois. So we're going to park Dubois for now. I think Frank's got different plans for him. Uh, who else have they got? Uh, they've got young Moses Atalma. He's on a different trajectory. And then you've got David Adelaide. Put him in the mix. And you've got Solly Dakers. Put him in the mix. And then you look at Matchroom and you go, well, who have Matchroom really got? They've got Johnny Fisher. I think they'd put him in that mix. 
They've got Dempsey McKean. I think you put him in that mix. And then who else really? Like seriously, who who else have they got? Uh, Dillian? Uh, okay. But Dillian's been inactive for a while. Do you throw Hergovic into this mix? Potentially, but he's kind of sitting on a world title shot. So does he need this hassle? Probably not. So, so on the heavyweights, likely fights you would have on that card would be, for me, David Adelaide against like a Johnny Fisher. And then I'd have someone like a Solly Dakers against a Dempsey McKean. Any mix of kind of that crowd is what you're going to get for your heavyweights. If you go down to Cruiserweight, you're probably not going to get anything. Eddie's got Big Jordan Thompson. Um, so, okay, you got Jordan Thompson and Shivon Clark. There's probably no one on Frank's side for Shivon Clark. Um, they're all young guys. You know, your Tommy Fletchers, Alois Juniors. They're all young guys. So you look at Jordan Thompson and you go, would you put Jordan Thompson in with Tommy Fletcher? It'll be literally man against boy. So I don't know if you'd want to do that. But that's a fight that could potentially happen. But I think, if I'm being honest, I think you can almost bypass a cruiserweight division. Um, like we said in the heavyweights, you could get, you know, that mix of Solly Dakers, David Adelaide, Johnny Fisher, Dempsey McKean. I get it. Maybe Justice Honey at a push, but we don't know who Justice Honey is really. But then you come to light heavyweight and you're almost like, well, they could really just do the bulk of the card at light heavyweight if everyone had the balls to, to put their guys in, right? So, right, who's I'm trying to think? Who have, who have Queensbury got? They've got Yard. They've got Ezra Taylor. They've got... I think they've still got Willie Hutchinson, right? Uh, who else? Carol Atalma. Okay. So you've got four there. And then you start to look at that list and you go... You could have Atalma versus John Hedges. You could have Ezra Taylor versus Khalil Coe, if you really wanted to do that. You could have Yard versus Callum Smith. Um, you could have Willie Hutchinson versus Craig Richards, right? You could, if you wanted to do it that way, you could flip them around. But th there are fights you can have there. But apart from Yard versus Smith, we haven't come across a blockbuster fight yet, have we? These are all just like, eh, whatever. You could just put this on free to wear. This is not special, yeah? And this is inherent struggle, right? We're trying to find fights that make sense and are appealing. And look, right now was... The, the, the Hollywood fight right now is Anthony Yard versus Callum Smith. Super mids are wasteland. Like, there isn't really anything there. What, they're going to dig up Zach Parker? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't think people are bothered. John Ryder's retired, so I think Hearn's kind of indifferent at super mid. Then you get down to middleweight, and you start to look, and you go, Heaney, Bentley, Shiraz, uh, Hennigan. And then on the matchroom side, who have you got? Cash, Dickinson, Ammo Williams. What are the likely fights there? A Bentley Cash rematch? Okay. There's there's value in that. And the Saudi stump up money. I think both guys would take that. I think Denzel's 
better for all the experiences he's been through since then. And I think cash may pay for inactivity. And then the only other fight I can think of would be like Hennigan versus Mark Dickinson. But these aren't like, I'm telling you, know, these aren't fights where you're like, I'd pay to see that. And so as you go through this list, you're starting to realize that it's not that deep. You know, at, at light middle, do you get one of the failed brothers in with Janaid Bostan? Maybe. But these aren't big fights. Um, you know, what do you do with Sam Noakes? Do you put Sam Noakes in with Gary Cully, for example? That would be a good fight, but it's not a blockbuster. So my point is, when you get to, to draw up this 5v5, there aren't many fights that are mind-blowing. And I don't say that to disrespect the fighters. I just say it because we need to be realistic about what we're going to get. We're just going to get undercard fights. We're not going to get five main events. We're going to get five undercard fights. Because a lot of those stables are works in progress. And you wouldn't want to derail that anytime soon. But I also expect there'll be a strategic element because you'll want to appeal to to a Middle Eastern audience, you know, particularly a Saudi audience. So you might see guys like Masood Abdul. I'd love to see Masood get a shot at at featherweight. I'd love to see guys like Akib Fiaz get stuck in there as well. You know, you know, I think you will need some some Muslim fighters on the card. So why not? But that five that five v five is going to be a very hard one to make sexy, and that's why you've got to have it on the undercard of the undisputed fight for light heavyweight because nothing else makes sense you may actually just end up saying look we're going to do a couple of light heavyweight fights and the winners of those are in line to fight the winner of the undisputed so for all of this money Saudi Arabia willing to spend I can't be sure that they're going to get their value you know I can't offer a guarantee that these guys are going to get value for money. And the reason I can't do that is we don't have a concentrated talent pool, right? Our best guys are split between probably four to six promoters. And so all of this, all of this money spent by the Saudis brings us back to this question. What's this all about? Why do the Saudis care so much about boxing? What's the game here? And I think I've said it before, but the game, the game ultimately is the World Cup. The game is ultimately the Olympics. The game is ultimately positioning Saudi Arabia as a sporting destination. Now, to win the big ticket items, you have to show a track record of big events, right? Big in inverted commas. So an example of big would be undisputed. Fury versus Usyk, undisputed, Baturbia versus Bivol. This is why they're calling for these kinds of cards, because they want to show that they can do these big ticket items, big budget items, and manage them successfully, because then you build up a strong case for being awarded a World Cup or being awarded an Olympic Games. That's what this is about. But it's also about that wider thing of positioning Saudi Arabia as a place that people respect, and when they start to build things, like a financial services infrastructure, which they're doing, when they start to build things, like a tech hub, which they're starting to do, when they want to do things like build engineering capabilities, all of these things that they're going to build in Saudi Arabia, when all of this starts to happen, 
they want you to remember this is the country that hosted the Olympics, hosted the World Cup, did all of these amazing things in the hope that you would feel comfortable going there to work or with your kids going out there to work. That's what they need. So boxing is not designed to make a profit. They genuinely don't care if they make a profit. It's just a case study. All of this stuff is just a loss leader for the big prize, which is the Olympics and or the World Cup. That's really where it's at. And that's why you're seeing there's a real effort in Saudi Arabia to, to build out Olympic sports. So boxing is an example. How can we build an amateur structure that will allow us to win Olympic gold medals on home soil? You're seeing the money they're spending with football. And it's not just about buying superstars. It's about upskilling your own players. That's why they buy clubs abroad. Because then it's like we can send our clubs here, there and everywhere. So there's a bigger strategy at play. And it's really, like I said, it's really about where does Saudi Arabia see itself a decade from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. And starting to invest now. The exact opposite of what happens in Britain, by the way, where we just think in two, three, four year cycles, right? Which is why we don't go anywhere. It's why we're still a, a low wage, low growth, weird enough, high consumption economy, right? Like I got into a debate with someone, they were trying to tell me the GDP figures for the United Kingdom versus Saudi Arabia, and I said, well, no. A big chunk of that GDP is just house price inflation. And so that's unrealized wealth because we are living in the houses that are going up in value. We don't get that money in our bank accounts. Whereas everything in Saudi Arabia is realized wealth. That's why they don't tax people. And so as Saudi Arabia keeps doing this and keeps selling oil and keeps making money, it does more things and realizes it doesn't have the internal skill capability to do all of that stuff, especially not at scale. So you bring in external insight, right? That's what you do, right? If people are doing marketing over here, yeah, take them over to Saudi, pay them a fortune and say, look, help us master this. Teach our people how to do this. You're seeing boxing folk out there. Now, Joe G's out there. He's helping out. I think, I don't want to speak for Joe, but it looks like his rim is just wider than the Mike Tyson Boxing Club. It looks like Joe is elbow deep in helping these guys figure out boxing across all the levels and how to produce champions. And if that's the case, then Joe's one of the three most important Brits in Saudi Arabia in terms of boxing. I wish people treated him accordingly. But a lot of good things are going to happen. And these things that we see, where it doesn't make sense to us, we're looking at it as boxing fans and we're looking at it through this really narrow lens of we just want good fights. Whereas the Saudis are looking at it like we need to show competence in sport and we're going to use sport as leverage to draw people in. And once people come in and see our country, they'll have no qualms about settling down. The only challenge for Saudi is to what extent do they need to liberalize to draw those people in? And to what extent can they liberalize being the home of Mecca and Medina? And having the eyes of the Islamic world, you know, like, what was it, one in four, one in five of the population are watching you to make sure you're fully compliant with the teachings of the Quran. So you can't just say we're going to open pubs and clubs in Riyadh. You can't. So they're, they're navigating this really complex societal change, which is what they're trying to do but they don't have the same freedoms 
that the UAE and the GCC countries had. So, you know, the UAE, uh, Qatar, Bahrain, Oman have a bit more latitude to, to ease up because they're not the home of the holy site. Whereas Saudi is, so there's a different pressure. And it'll be interesting to see how they navigate that in the next decade. But always have that perspective that it's not about fans. It's really about showing that competence in managing large-scale events. Now, here's why this is a bad thing for boxing. I don't know if anyone's ever read the book Barbarians at the Gate. It's essentially the story of the takeover of RJR Nabisco, right? And they, they kind of liken it to the, the high point of many things. Um, financial services corruption being one of them. But it was the high point of what they called asset stripping back in the day. We call it private equity now because it's a, it's a softer, nicer way to describe it. Private equity. Hmm. But it's asset stripping. And what we're seeing in boxing right now is asset stripping. Right? You take a sport that has, let's just say it's got 10,000 participants globally, 20,000 globally. You take a sport, pro boxing, and you hollow out the 10 most lucrative names and you isolate those lucrative names in one country where they all just fight each other. And they fight each other until they're physically unable to do so, but they get well paid in the process. What do you think happens to the rest of your sport? What do you think happens to the rest of your sport when you when you don't have the stars to anchor shows anymore because they're all waiting for the call to go to Saudi? Your sport starts to die slowly. Who wants to watch another show in Telford? anchored by no one that we really know or invested in. Who wants to watch another show in the Wembley Arena of just a load of prospects? Who wants to watch another show in York Hall chock full of uh, prospects? No one. Who wants to go to Victoria Warehouse to go and watch the best of the Northwest crack on? Not many people. This is what happens when you asset strip and you say, we only care about these 10 lucrative names because we have our strategic agenda. Everyone else, you go and do what you got to do. And that's not even the worst thing. So let's look at it like this. Anthony Joshua made his name stopping Vladimir Klitschko. Tyson Fury made his name outclassing Vladimir Klitschko. Um, look at all the people Baturbi have made his name against. Um, Joe Smith, Marcus Brown, etc., etc. Bivol made his name against Canelo. All of these guys have come up somehow. Right? That's always been the rule in boxing. When you get to the top, at some point, you got to pass it down. Call it a torch, call it the, the bag, whatever you want to call it, you pass it down. So the money stays in the sport. Mayweather left and took his money with him. Pacquiao stayed and put money into guys like Ugas. Is it Ugas he fought? I can't remember. But he put, he put money in those defeats that Pacquiao faced. He put money in. Put money into Bradley. Made Bradley relevant. De La Hoya put money into Mosley. Just like Mosley put money into Forrest. 
Just like De La Hoya put money into Pacquiao. Hopkins put money into Jermaine Taylor. Chad Dawson put money into Andre Ward. Do you see what I mean? We can't let the top guys become this kind of economic unit of its own right where they don't pass that down. Because it means you're building from scratch. Is Fury going to take that L against Moses Atalma to elevate him? Is Joshua going to take that L against Johnny Fisher to elevate him? Is Bivol going to take that L against Yard to elevate him? It doesn't seem that way because the Mayweatherfication of boxing means that you're trying to leave with as few losses as possible and as much money as possible as opposed to giving back to the sport. Following the same path that helped you build. And we're seeing this with Canelo now. Look at all the people who took that payday, passed their best to fight him. Cotto is a good example of that. And look, even Triple G, to help Canelo ascend. And Canelo's not dropping that ladder down to Benavides. That's what's killing the economy of boxing, is that we build these stars and then the stars just leave. And they don't do anything with their name apart from exhibitions. You know, and as much as people think, you know, I'm having a bromance with this guy, Carl Froch was similar. No, Carl didn't fight the girl. Maybe that would have kept some money in the division. When Carl left, he took that dough with him. But he didn't do anything with it. When Calzaghi left, he took that with him. No one's, no one's leaving that rub. No one's leaving that torch. No one's leaving that bag for the new generation to come up. And so as a result, we're struggling to find the next generation of stars. A good example, Jerome Ennis is in his peak years right now. He doesn't have a Danny Garcia on his name, a Keith Thurman, a Sean Porter, a Terence Crawford, an Errol Spence. He doesn't have any of these guys on his record when he should do. Because we keep saying he's next. If he's next, he needs that rub. Garcia shouldn't be talking about Conor Ben. He should be talking about Boots Ennis. That's the sad part about all of this. That for the sake of the Saudi money, we're allowing our sport to rot from the inside out. Now, if you're pro boxer, you're saying, well, let them get paid what they deserve. It's a short career. There are a lot of risks. I, I buy into that 100%. But we can't let them become this self-contained economic entity that uses boxing to generate revenue and doesn't give back to boxing. We can't allow that. At some point, these guys have to drop something back in so we can build some more stars. And that can't just be me thinking that there has to be other promoters as well. And if they're not, then they're part of the problem. So I'm just conscious of time and I realize I haven't really covered everything. So let's make this a two-parter and let me, let me sort of jump off here and say, guys, first thing, we've got a whole shopping list here. Number one, make sure you jump on episode 200, you know, if, it's, if you enjoyed it, you know, introduce it to a new friend. Let's, let's grow the listenership again. Let's have another continued year of growth. Secondly, you know, 
tune into part two. So, you know, this will be part one of two. And then thirdly, as always, let's keep that dialogue going on social media because it's important that there's a, a community of people who are right-minded and balanced about boxing. It's, I mean, I think that's really important. But I'm going to see you guys on part two. Okay? Take care.